The Start On Demand. On demand. The 2018 Crime Stats Report is being released today, Monday, by Winnipeg Police. Police chief last week saying the numbers are concerning and that crime is plaguing our city. So we'll speak with a criminologist from the University of Winnipeg to get a preview. We're also going to talk to Alan Cross, professional music geek, the host of the ongoing history of new music, about disco and how some view the disco demolition event from the Chicago White Sox like 40 years ago as a racist and homophobic act. And is it okay to take your baby to the movie? I'm Brett McGarry alongside Greg Mackling and a vacationing Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb and this is the Monday, July 22nd podcast for The Start. Thank you very much, Tristan Field-Jones, Mackling, and McGarry. McNabb is now off for two weeks. I was <laughs> Who off. are you now? Uh, yeah. Well, okay, so last week I was off. It was you and McNabb. The yep. week before, you were off, right? Correct. So it was me and McNabb. And I think before that, she was gone. So And now she's gone for two weeks, and then I'm gone for a week. And then are you gone the week after that, or are we together for a week and then you're gone? I think we're all together for a week, and then I'm gone the last week of August, and then boom, it's September. Yeah. So the the summer musical chairs continues, so McNabb's going to enjoy a well-earned, well-deserved two weeks off, and uh, I I certainly enjoyed my, my week off. I did nothing. Good for you. Last week. On Monday, I got up and went to see the Spider-Man Spider-Man uh, Far Spider-Man. From Home. Yeah, some big uh, fan of his. Yeah, it was excellent. If you haven't seen that movie yet, it was super fun. Uh, great movie. And then there was one point, I think, on Wednesday where I just kind of sat there staring at a blank television in the morning <laughs> for like half an hour. Mm. Just sat there with with my cat, just doing, just staring at the wall, just relaxing, kind of just decompressing. So it was nice. It was nice to get... and. Uh, while I would like to be one of those people who says, I'm really excited to be back at work. Don't You don't have to lie. Yeah. It's okay. <laughs> I'm happy to be back at work, but uh, hey, I, I quite enjoy doing nothing. I think since the very first time we worked with one another, we have promised that this microphone in front of each of our mouths and faces will be the vacuum of honesty. So mm-hmm. if, you, if you can't be honest... Well, speaking to me while we're in the studio, then we're in big trouble. Well, I'm looking forward to to being honest at 645. We're going to have a discussion about something you saw on Twitter. And it had had to do with, I mentioned Spider-Man. It actually had to do with the movies and a particular segment of the population that goes to the movies. Yeah, a young woman complaining uh, that she was at a movie and somebody else in the crowd decided to bring their toddler, three-month-old, to mm-hmm. the movie, to mm-hmm. the picture, yep. to the cinema, <laughs> and the baby was crying, and the woman who had their child in tow couldn't figure out why everybody was mad at her. Mm-hmm. Well, that's because you shouldn't be bringing a three-month-old to a movie, and if you decide to bring a three-month-old to the movie, have enough common courtesy to leave the theater when your baby's being fussy for an experience. Extended amount of time. A couple times, I think people would be somewhat sympathetic. 
people understand you can't always get a babysitter. The movie's expensive enough as it is. And then to throw the babysitter in there, you're looking at a hundred bucks to go and see a movie with the babysitter and popcorn and the, and the entrance fee and everything. Uh, there is a line, and it would appear as though the person with the baby crossed the line. And it's not the baby's fault. No. Not the baby's fault. Well, let us know what you think. Babies at the movie, 204-780-6868. You can text us that now. We put a poll on our 680-CJOB Instagram. You can weigh in there. And then we will have that conversation in full at 645 when we gather the troops. Also today we're going to be talking a lot about the Winnipeg Blue Bombers and we're going to be talking about the 1960, specifically the year 1960. Why? Winnipeg Blue Bombers for the first time since 1960 have started a season with five straight victories and if you want to include the preseason they've actually won seven games in a row. Mm. And if I'm not mistaken, if you include... The regular season last year, I think they've won 10 regular season games in a row, which uh, correlates nicely and dovetails into the fact that the 1960 Winnipeg Blue Bombers, in fact, won their first 10 games of that season. They ended up 14-2, and but lost to Edmonton in the semifinal. Did not make the Grey Cup. Uh, Ken Plain got injured in the playoffs. So we'll be talking about 1960. Uh, for those that remember it, we'd like to hear from you. For those that were not born yet, we'll tell you how cheap stuff was versus today. And we'll even play some music from the year 1960. I don't know how good the music is in 1960. I wasn't around. I looked at the list. It's it's okay. We'll try and make the best of of a bad crop. How's that? Oh, come on. <laughs> I bet you the music was delightful and happy. We'll, we'll find out. Will sure, Reimer sure. in for Jeff Forte and Master Control. How long are you in, by the way, Will? Is it a week? Two weeks? Just for a week. Just That's a right. week. Forte taking a week off. Actually, it was Forte who, in, I'm guessing he was still awake because Forte's a night guy. He was awake this morning and he sent a picture from his balcony. He lives on Henderson Highway. He could see something off in the distance, sent a picture on three in the morning. And Greg, you went to stop by. Tristan's been telling us in Global News, huge fire. Yeah, as involved, and I said this right in my Twitter, uh, as involved a fire as I've ever seen. And a two-story building, but it looks like it's basically a full block. Uh, Two buildings that are connected by a modern-ish metal building, like a warehouse building that connects two older buildings. And it would appear that All three buildings, if you like, or the entire block is going to be a loss. And there were at least a dozen pieces of firefighting equipment on the scene, Uh, over 50 firefighters that I counted myself. They had their drone there up in the sky so that they could sort of understand where the hot spots were for the fire, two aerial units. It uh, was quite the scene. And... I guess probably most importantly, right across the street north of uh, the fire are two little bays that are home to Habitat for Humanity homes in the past. In fact, the street is called Habitat Place. Oh, wow. And so the firefighters were pouring water on at least one of those homes in order to keep it cool. I saw them pouring water on other uh, buildings as well. You could really feel the heat, and there were embers, uh, burning embers up in the uh, up in the sky. So it was uh, definitely 
uh, a concern, and uh, I suspect uh, firefighters will be on the scene there for for quite a while. Well, if you want to see some of the video that Greg captured and some of the pictures, we've uploaded all of those to our 680CJOB Instagram. You can also go to cjob.com. And in fact, we just got an update from the city of Winnipeg on this fire, and they do say it's expected crews are going to remain on scene throughout the entire day and into tomorrow. Uh, the call came in at 12.43 this morning to the industrial building at 274 Jarvis Avenue. The fire spread aggressively across the building, which occupies a full city block. Uh, Most of the building has collapsed as crews are continuing to fight this. One firefighter suffered a slip and fall injury, but was able to remain on duty. Uh, Cause of the fire is under investigation. No damage estimates available yet, but again, it looks like they're going to be there all day today and tomorrow. Mackling and McGarry, McNabb, back in a couple of weeks. Greg, what's going on with the Peel Police? Well, there's some real grumpy people out there, apparently. Yes. First, it was calling 911 to complain about an Amber Alert. We saw those tweet, and I'm sure was it was, it th- was it there I think too? it was the Peel oh Police. <laughs> people were calling, saying, <laughs> why are you waking me up about an Amber Alert uh, that isn't even in our area? Uh Peel police uh, fired back on their Twitter machine uh, quite loudly at those folks. Then it has been basketball nets and even swings being taken down in parks in Toronto and Vancouver because people living close to where kids are playing have complained about noise and other behavior. Now this from at Peel Police Media on Twitter. It's hot outside, which means the ice cream trucks will probably be out if the ice cream truck stops in front of your house and is there for a bit due to all the children, it's still not a reason to call 911 to complain. If you have a complaint about ice cream trucks, call 311. Ice cream! Ice cream! The ice cream man is coming! The ice cream man is coming! Yes, I edited it. The ice cream man is coming! Then your mother come to the window and be throwing change. She's saying, get your father toasted almond bar and get your brother icy and get yourself vanilla cone and bring back my change. And you catch your run down the street, top speed. Chasing the ice cream truck. Ice cream! Is that Eddie Murphy? Eddie Murphy from Delirious. Delirious, wow. Yeah. Or was that raw? That's, Which one's when he's in the red? I think... Ooh, I think that was delirious. That is delirious, yeah. I'm going to double check that. I'm pretty sure it's the first one, delirious. Uh, One of my favorites of all time. That is so bang on. Yeah, that's uh, delirious where he's he's wearing kind of red leather. It's kind of a creepy outfit. But um, (laughs) that's so bang on because that that took me right back to my childhood because you hear the sound and it's just like this Pavlovian response. I remember I was actually playing baseball when I was playing some somewhere on 10 or 11 years old and I won't name him but our right fielder while the the we are in play <laughs> heard the Dicky D ice cream guy coming and he like went off the field to yell at his mom and dad to get some ice cream how old were you like 10 or 11 we weren't like little children 
<laughs> and so everyone's his parents are yelling at him. We're yelling at him to wake up and get back on the field. I don't remember if he actually got his ice cream, but he wanted that ice cream, man. Those Dickie D bicycles were the best, and you, you the the riders they had that little. They had a rhythm going with their pedals, and then they would shake those bells just a certain way, yeah. and you could hear them coming, and just like Eddie Murphy described. That's the thing about the best stand-up comedians is they relay stories in a way that we've never thought about them before. They take fr- from the ridiculous to the sublime, and uh, but we can all relate to that because we've all been there where we've heard either the, the ding-ding-ding-ding of the... <laughs> Ice cream truck, because yeah. there's not a ton of those in Winnipeg, but in Winnipeg, more the Dickie D yeah. ice cream bikes. But I remember when I was in the Bronx at a, at a New York Yankees game, uh, walking around before going into the stadium, and Mr. Softy, that's the legendary oh. ice cream truck in New York, and I, I saw and heard Mr. Softy, which was really kind of cool. I got to tell you, when I, uh, I was, I can't even remember what I was doing on Friday, but uh, I just pulled up the bomber score on my phone and I thought my phone was broken or I thought the website was broken. Why's that? Because the bombers were up 28 to one. Correct. And I thought, one? Is this a, is this a typo? What's going on here? Rouge. Rouge. <laughs> so, Long punt that uh, bounced over the head of the Blue Bomber returner. And it actually ended up being a really good thing because uh, the Bombers took the ensuing drive all the way down for a touchdown. So um, Winnipeg Blue Bombers, not only is their offense looking good, but their, at times, much maligned defense is looking excellent as well. Both teams started off quite slowly, and it was a defensive touchdown, a pick six, as they call it, an interception that went the other way for a touchdown that got things rolling. I've put together some highlights here if, you, if you'd like to hear them. I would like to hear them. Here's how it went down on Friday. Second and three, just short of the Bomber 42-yard line, again on the left hash. And they'll give it, no, they'll fake it and throw quickly, intercepted by Winston Rose, and he's gone for a touchdown. The 30, the 20, the 10, touchdown Blue Bombers. Winston Rose read that beautifully, stepped in front of the intended receiver, and away he went. All week in practice from game film, um, I noticed that in, when they in that pers- personnel and that uh, in that group, I know that they like to throw a quick slant. So I just stuck to the game plan, just stuck to watching film, and just just jumped it. <laughs> yeah, we could see that. Nichols back to pass. Lots of time deep in the end zone. He's got Andrew Harris. Touchdown, Blue Bombers. Harris in the corner of the end zone for a Blue Bomber touchdown. Second and 10 at the Ottawa 54. Nichols back to pass. Down the field. He's got Lawler at the 20. Lawler at the 15, the 10, the 5. Touchdown, Kenny Lawler. Beautiful throw by Matt Nichols and Lawler. Obviously ran a gorgeous route, and he's got a touchdown. Tell us about the touchdown and that play and how it unfolded. Uh, so it was a great call by Coach Lapo. Uh, he knew what they was going to be in. That's where we first started. And, uh, you know, after that, it was just like a just simple post route. And uh, when the ball was thrown, the ball was thrown in the perfect spot uh, by Matt. And uh, after that, it was just um, test the ball, secure it. 
Trebler in the shotgun from the two-yard line. And he will fake it to Harris, keep it himself, and Strebler lowers his shoulder, and he's in for the Blue Bomber touchdown. Matt Nichols, who had a record-breaking night, a club record-breaking night, to completing 19 passes in a row. Matt, uh, now you're a humble guy, and you're going to downplay this, but uh, <laughs> give us give us the real Nichols' view on this. That's pretty cool, eh? No, that is definitely really cool. I mean, I pride myself on being an you know, efficient quarterback, and uh, you know, especially because I think I, you know, I might have started 0 for 4, or 1 for 4, or something like that. And uh, you know, we had a couple little hiccups there in, in the very beginning, and uh, you know, to get get it get it turned around and right the ship and go on some drives. You know, and you know, I've already talked about a couple times in my other sessions with the, with the media that uh, you know I see that as a complete offensive stat. I mean, that's that's Lapo putting us in good positions, guys making tough catches, guys not dropping balls, uh, you know, me not being under duress as I'm throwing. So, I mean, that's a full offensive effort to, to have a stat like that. That's Matt Nichols breaking that uh, club record that was set by Dieter Brock so many years ago, 19 consecutive completions. Very impressive performance by the Blue Bomber offense and defense. Uh, just a reminder that the Bombers, October 13th, beat Saskatchewan 31-0 last season as part of a stretch of games where they won one, two, three, four. I think that's five in a row. No, four in a row. Uh, they did, in fact, lose uh, a couple games down the stretch. So they did not l win their final five games. Uh, Matt Nichols uh, uh, kind of alluded to that in the post-game show on Friday night. And uh, so I wanted to double-check that. So that is not uh, not accurate. But the Bombers now 5-0 and for the first time since 1960. And uh, as mentioned, and you'll be hearing it, I suspect, ad nauseum for the next little while, uh, the 1960 Blue Bombers started the season 10-0. and Wow. And uh, this Friday's matchup is going to be in Hamilton. That should be an interesting one because Hamilton is has the second best record in the CFL at 4-1 and one to sit atop the East Division. What are your thoughts on that? Well, Hamilton will pose as big a test as the Bombers have seen so far this year. I would say the second biggest test uh, of the year would have been Edmonton, but this should be the biggest test uh, for ha for the Blue Bombers. And in Hamilton, it's always difficult to win in Hamilton for whatever reason, uh, whether it was in old Iverwind Stadium or now at Tim Hortons Field. There's just something about going to Hamilton that visiting teams don't don't really particularly like. It's not a knock on the city itself, or maybe it is. <laughs> are, are you taking a shot at uh, I'm at just saying city? it might be, it might not be. <laughs> Trying to stay diplomatic for a change. Coach, a show tonight? Seven to eight. Coach O'Shea, along with Bob Irving, get down to all the nitty-gritty, your calls, your commentary, your suggestions, your observations, uh, right here as part of the 680 CJOB Sports Show with Christian O'Mal, 7 to 8, the coach and Bob, and then from 8 till 9, I'm sure there'll be lots of Jets talk. As uh, Andrew Kopp went to arbitration, had an arbitration hearing yesterday. The Jets avoided arbitration with Neil Pionk, their newly acquired defenseman in the Jacob Trouba trade from the New York Rangers. We will speak to uh, Murata Tesh from the Athletic just after 9 o'clock. We'll get the insight on the Jets. They do not have a ton of money left to sign Patrick Laine and Kyle, Kyle Connor, and they need to get a couple other guys on the on the roster as well. So it's um, 
Count your pennies, nickels, dimes, and quarters time for Kevin Shovel Day off in the Winnipeg Jets. Mackling and McGarry McNabb is back next week. Tristan Field-Jones is here. Kelly Moore is here. Will Reimer is here. In for Jeff Fortier and Master Control this week. And Greg, you found a tweet over the weekend from uh, Isaiah's mom, or at <laughs> Gohan's mom. And what did the tweet read? It says, a woman on Facebook was complaining that people at the movie theater were rude to her because her, this is all caps, three-month-old, undo all caps, kept fussing during the movie. Sorry, but I really don't think people should bring their infants to a movie. Uh, no judgment here uh, by this person. Uh, her fault. <laughs> <laughs> so you can let us know at 204-780-6868 what you think. Tristan, uh, Tristan Field-Jones, what do you think? Oh, boy. Here. I'm waiting for this. <laughs> so this would be my rule. If your baby's quiet, stay in the movie theater as long as you like. If your baby's noise, noisy, bye-bye. That's it. Get out. Yeah, I would say that's very simple. And I mean, I, I look at this and I think someone complaining on Facebook, like, well, people were annoyed at me because I was partially responsible for disrupting the entire movie that you probably paid way too much for. Why would that be the case? Yeah. So you think maybe there's a sense of entitlement there? Maybe not so much a sense of entitlement, but maybe a bit of uh, obliviousness, if you will. And, you know, the fact is, uh, and, and I've, in, in all seriousness, I've known people, uh, you know, young mothers who purposely don't bring their babies to movie theaters because they know they'll cause a fuss because that's what they do. They're, you know, a mouth to feed and a, a diaper to clean, basically. Well, when I take my kids out for dinner, one of the things I say to them, if they start acting up, it's like, guys, there are other people in this restaurant, mm-hmm. first and foremost. Secondly, some of those people have chosen to leave their children at home. Yeah. They don't need to be bothered by your antics and shenanigans. Pipe down or we're leaving Pretty simple, right, Kelly Moore? And I'll tell you what, and I'd make them do chores for the rest of the week to pay the restaurant bill, too. <laughs> That's wow. just the old curmudgeon that I am. Uh, good idea. Thank you. Yeah, no, not a problem. Uh, I, I On this particular situation, I agree totally with Tristan. What? It scares the living bejesus out of me. But uh, I think I have to leave now. <laughs> yeah, I think I do, too. And, and I would extend that to another uh, venue as well. Don't bring your baby camping. Uh, you know, especially like to a provincial park where there's tents and that. I, I can remember one time we were camping and all through the night and we weren't upset with the baby. We were thinking with the parents, like you can always go camping next year and the year after that, the year after that. But, you know, when you've got a little infant that's, uh, you know, waking up uh, at all hours of the night, the rest of us don't want to get up for the feeding too. Yeah, I. When it comes to babies at the movie theater, I uh, like look. I get it. You you want to go see a movie. You want to get out. You're a new parent. You've got a baby. All you've been doing is taking care of this baby and trying to keep it alive. You got to get out. You're still a grown up, and you got to get out and do stuff, or you're going to go crazy. But you have to, if you're going to bring your baby to a movie theater, I think you have to expect people will get annoyed if your baby starts fussing. But I I have seen that. Like sometimes I, I brought up entitlement because I've seen that kind of behavior from some young parents, not all, like Tristan alluded to being just oblivious, and I, I never underestimate people's ability to be oblivious or mm-hmm. just flat out stupid, but I think some people have that kind of mentality, <laughs> like, oh, well, hey, I'm a new parent, and uh, I, I, I get to do, 
I get to bring my baby wherever I want because this is my baby. How dare you look down on me for bringing my baby into this restaurant? How dare you? Well, this is a human rights violation. Yeah, and, and see the baby. And, well, and, and, and newsflash, folks, not everybody likes babies or young children. Get over it. <laughs> he's, he's so like, don't invite Tristan Field Jones to your shower, whatever you do. Well, if I don't know you, then I'll, I'll you know, he's decline not gonna, that. He's not going to bring a present either. Well, if it's somebody I know, then yes. But ultimately, I mean, it, but that's a fact, though. Like, not everybody likes babies or young children. It, it, you know, look at how cute my young child is. No. Will Reimer's <laughs> not. Will Reimer in for Jeffrey Forte. Do you like babies? Do you like children? Oh, you don't want to ask me that. <laughs> I, I, I think I just did. <laughs> well, okay. Come on, Will. We're, we're going to jump to the movie theater. Thing. Okay. My, my oh. thoughts on this is I, I like the idea that anybody should be able to do what they want. If you're going to bring your baby to the movie theater, that's your choice. However, if we let one person bring their baby to the movie theater, now we have to let everybody bring their movie or their, their baby to the movie theater. And could you imagine sitting in a theater when there's 40 or 50 babies in there at one time? <laughs> no matter how much you try, that's just going to be like a low rumble of child noises. Well, they actually have a program for that, but you know about it ahead of time. Yeah, Cineplex has a program called Stars and Strollers, where you can watch a new release movie with your baby. They've got it covered. It's uh, movies in a baby-friendly environment. I believe Landmark Cinema's Grand Park has their own program, but they have specific screenings where it's designed for young parents who want to bring their Perfect. babies yeah. Yeah. to the movie. So then you go in expecting there to be yeah. babies, yeah. right? So I think that's okay. One trend, another trend when it comes to babies that I haven't quite understood... <laughs> I shouldn't say I don't understand, because I do. The, it, babysitters are expensive, etc. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But so many people taking their kids to sporting events. And I'm not taking saying kids. I'm talking toddlers or infants with the big, they'll put yeah. the big industrial headphones. In fact, you can buy them online for kids. And I just... Ah. I understand maybe you don't have any other options. Jackie and I have been very lucky in terms of having options, but... Go to a Jets game with a baby on your lap? I don't get it. Or a bomber game? I, I guess. Yeah. I guess if you have to and, yeah. and the baby's comfortable, all Just, the more power to you. Yeah, I, I I don't have an issue with that because, you know, it exposes them to different experiences and that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, and, and it's already going to be loud, so you're, you're not going to hear a baby Oh, you're not going to bother, yeah. bother me. I, yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah, that's not the issue at all. I just It just seems odd. I mean, newsflash, babies are expensive. You feed them, and that food just ends up right in the diaper anyway. Isn't that how it works? <laughs> oh, man. Who, who invited him? Justin Field Jones. Uh, and, and in case anyone's wondering, no, I'm not a father, and I intend to keep it that I way. Yeah, I was just going to say, I don't think there's any chance of that happening. On behalf so. of all the unborn children in the world, or that are not in the world, or to come to the world once mm-hmm. upon a time, Thank goodness for that. Yeah. Oh, and I'm 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 okay with that. I'm I'm comfortable with that. Here's a text message mm-hmm. at 204-780-6868. I have a five-year-old. I feel for the parent at the movie. I do know some theaters have toddler baby days at the movies. Last time I took my daughter, that's how I did. I hope everyone knows as a parent of a child, I know it would be tough. Let's all just be a bit nicer. She knows how it affects other people. We've all been there. Well, I, I, I appreciate the, the optimism in that, but I don't know if people know because I remember going to a movie once at 10 o'clock and some young woman brought it, carted in her like five-year-old to, to a movie that started wow. at 10 p.m. 
And that goes to a text we got from Eve, who says the fact that someone brought a three-month-old baby to the theater tells me the maturity level of that parent. So, If you were making noise, if you were being disruptive... You'd get shushed. You'd get shushed yeah. and potentially kicked out of the theater as an adult. Yep. You'd probably get worse if TFJ was there, but... Yeah, absolutely. No, no I'm, not, I'm not a horrific human being. I'm just annoyed. Oh, I think I'd go with horrific. Horrific? Yeah. That's a bit harsh, Kelly. want to talk about life in the 1960s specifically 1960 because the winnipeg blue bombers on friday with their crushing defeat of ottawa what was the final score again 31 to 1 for the winnipeg blue bombers very impressive outing uh, by the by the home side for sure and it's the first time the bombers have opened the season 5 and 0 oh since 1960 so Found this video, just a quick little one to kind of set up this segment. How things have changed since then. Have a good day, Daddy. You too. We're going to the community center to watch them fill the pool. The TV show Mad Men transports us to life in the 60s. Let's take a look at how people really went about some of their daily activities. Craving for a quick, hot midnight snack? Forget about it. Consumer microwaves are just getting introduced, and at $500, beyond the reach of most people, since the average annual income was five dollars to $6,000. These days, people complain about too many channel choices. Well, in those days, life was simpler. You had only NBC, ABC, and CBS. Families were starting to get a nifty new gadget called the remote, which meant children didn't have to sit on the floor close to the TV sets for changing channels. If you wanted to talk to someone remotely, you had to use a rotary dial phone, and that was a major innovation for that time, considering the prior method was to go through an operator who would listen in on your conversations. For instant photography, there was a hugely popular Polaroid Swinger, a $20 hip instant camera of its time, even though you did not have the ability to share your photos electronically. The supermarket boom was just starting in that decade, and people were moving away from shopping at mom-and-pop stores or growing their own fruits and vegetables. That was a time without tools like email, texting, Google. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, <laughs> etc. And we found, I mean, if you just, if you Google life in 1960, you'll get a whole bunch of articles. Here's one from CNBC from last year. So this is from April 2018. So... Things will have changed even since then. The headline is home prices have risen 114% since 1960. Here's how much more expensive life is today. So again, this is an American article, but one example has to do with rent. In 1960, it says the the cost of rent has gone up nearly 750% from the 1960s just to the year 2000. So it was $71, looks like, for the average rent in 1960. And in 2000, it had jumped to uh, $857. Price of homes in 1960 looks like $11,900. And then in 2000, the average price was about, uh, looks like $170,000. And then there's another article here that made me chuckle. 27 things... Kids did in the 1960s that would horrify us now. (laughs) Okay. It's a miracle that any of us survived childhood (laughs) in the 1960s. 
And it says, it's pretty much a miracle that any of us survived childhood in the 1960s. Parents exposed kids to secondhand smoke and let them run wild in the streets. Sugar was in everything and hazards lurked everywhere. Given today's hands-on style of parenting, it's hard to believe some of the things that were normal for kids in the 60s, such as pregnant women smoking and drinking. Mothers everywhere may have been decreasing your oxygen while you were still in the womb. If you made it out in one piece, you probably later found yourself sitting on mom's lap or crawling around under the table while she was having an afternoon swig and a smoke with a friend while pregnant with your little brother. <laughs> boy, oh boy, were that my house? <laughs> uh, crummy car seats and seat belts. And there's a picture. Car seats? What was a car seat? I don't remember seeing a car seat in our family till. My uh, third, like my uh, second youngest brother, or second oldest brother, pardon me, was born in 1977. I remember having a car seat for him, but my brother Kevin, we never had a car seat for him. I'm sure, I always say this, I quit smoking the day I was born. Yep. <laughs> and I went home in my mom's arms in the front seat of the car, and I will almost guarantee she was not wearing a seat belt. And the dashboard of our car was probably made of metal. Really? Oh, probably, yes. Jeez. Yeah, there's a picture here uh, in a, some sort of an old convertible with a mother at the wheel and two children in the front seat right beside her. Mm-hmm. I don't remember if I had a car seat. I guess if I did have one, it was probably when I was too young to remember because I definitely didn't have one, pretty sure, from the time I was four onward. But now, with like kids are got to be, how old? What is it? Is it age or size now? Age or size, I think it's 80 pounds is the magic, and they're in a booster seat. Yeah. So you buy these these car seat systems. First, it's a bucket. Yeah. It's a rear-facing bucket that they have to be in, and then they go into these car seats that grow and change with them, and then they eventually end up in a booster seat until 8, 9, 10 years old, some kids, wow. depending on their height and their, and their weight. I think it's just the weight. I don't think it has anything to do with the height, but... Generally, there's a little bit of a correlation there anyway. More on smoking. This third one says smoking was emulated and encouraged. Cigarettes (laughs) hung from adult lips everywhere, in stores, on planes, on television, and at the kitchen table. Oh, my gosh. Unsafe cribs. Mm -hmm. In the 60s, pediatricians encouraged moms to let babies sleep on their stomachs, Mm -hmm. which we now know is not a great idea. (laughs) Plus, cribs had few of the safety measures in place today. Dangerous drop rails, slats so wide an infant's head could get stuck, places where tiny fingers could get caught, and choking hazards were just some of the problems. Trampolines without nets. That's not something that is has been eliminated. I'm pretty sure I still see trampolines without nets. Yeah, I don't know if you're supposed to have one without a net. But let's face it, the trampoline was something that came to school once a year. You had it for a week. Yep. And remember, you bounce on the trampoline and the entire class yep. would be lined up around the trampoline with their Hands up to make a human net in case your body went astray. You bounced in the wrong direction. We didn't have trampolines in our backyards back in the 70s and 80s, probably not even in the 90s. Yeah, I think I had a little, like, single... Like a mini tramp? Yeah, and it was... was, I couldn't bounce that high, maybe a couple of feet. It was just something we'd uh, noodle around with in the backyard. Uh, no child proofing, walking to and from school alone. Oh, my perish God. the thought. <laughs> yeah. Uh, going to a friend's house unescorted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I used to do that all the time when I was a little kid. Go, why don't you go see what Warren's doing? 
In other words, get out of here. You're driving me nuts. <laughs> Go bother. The house. Do you have homework? No, I have no homework. What are you doing here? Get out. <laughs> Chewing sugary bubble gum. Is there no longer sugar in bubble gum? I don't, I don't chew bubble don't gum know. anymore. And of course, the spider's eggs and the hubba bubba and the bubble yum. Remember that uh, conspiracy theory or that urban legend? That bubble yum, or I think it was bubble yum or hubba bubba, were filled with spider's eggs. And of course, you couldn't swallow your gum, you were told. That, that was one thing. That was one of those urban legends that went around when we were kids. Don't swallow your gum because you won't be able to, you know, do anything uh, intestinally for quite a while. Oh, It'll really? clog you up. Wow. Yeah. I, well, I wonder if I ever actually did swallow the bubble gum. But yeah, you're right. That I was the fear was put into me of that. Don't swallow the bubblegum. Bubblegum all the time, man. Well, you can text us 204-780-6868 on some of the things that you used to do in the 1960s that would never fly today. Just no sunscreen, stickballing games in the streets, drinking from garden hoses. I drank from a garden hose when I was a kid. <laughs> Cooling off of the fire. Yeah, some of these things are are still happening today, I'm sure. <laughs> This is great. Only in Winnipeg could you get this one. We would drive our bikes behind the Malathion truck, which is what they use to spray for mosquitoes, to see who would last the longest. I remember in 1979 or 78, the mosquitoes were so bad in Winnipeg that they actually sprayed Malathion from a DC-3 aircraft in the middle of the day. And I remember standing on my grandmother's front lawn, staring up at the sky as the DC-3 was doing its trek across the sky of Winnipeg. Anybody else remember that? 780-6868. And oddly enough, the final slide in this article that I'm looking at at countryliving.com, chasing trucks emitting poisonous vapors. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) How about... Uh, looking at the clock here, bumper shining. Oh, bumper shining. Yeah, I don't see kids doing that anymore. No? I don't... Well... I guess that's part of it is typically when they're doing it, you don't know they're there. That's that, right. That's part of the art. Yeah, that's right. This morning, there was a huge fire at 274 Jarvis Warehouse Fire. Greg Mackling stopped and got some pictures and video. You can see them on the 680 CJOB Instagram as well as at CJOB.com. And shortly after 7 o'clock, Fire Chief John Lane spoke to the media. 43 minutes after midnight, we received an alarm uh, to this uh, large uh, um, uh, multi, uh, multi-use building here on uh, at the corner of Schultz and uh, uh, Jarvis. Uh, this is a very large building. It actually occupies the entire block between uh, Jarvis and Sutherland. Uh, and actually shares an address on Sutherland as well. Uh, first crews were here within uh, seven minutes. They uh, observed smoke from the uh, second floor. Um, they mounted an interior attack. Uh, the interior of the building is quite uh, quite chopped up. So they're, um, uh, after 30 minutes inside, uh, the smoke and heat conditions were uh, becoming intolerable. The uh, crews retreated and we uh, reverted to a defensive attack using uh, external hand lines and the, uh, the aerial trucks with uh, water tower operations. Uh, at 2.51, the south part of the building collapsed and then fire spread rapidly northward through the remainder of the building. Um, and as you can see, we've had partial collapse of, uh, 
of the north part of the building uh, with what remains standing behind me. Uh, we have, uh, the power has been cut for this uh, part of the uh, street because of the uh, danger of, uh, of the collapsing walls uh, uh, hitting the power lines and perhaps knocking them down. Um, these residences were evacuated for a, uh, uh, a period of time, but the, the residents are back in now. Um, smoke conditions were of concern. This generated a lot of smoke uh, to, the, to the east, and uh, so we called uh, uh, Manitoba Sustainable De Development to come and, uh, and uh, monitor the smoke conditions, uh, which they've been doing uh, since their arrival. Uh, we've had uh, one injury, a slip and fall injury by one of the firefighters. Uh, he has managed to stay on duty and, and, his, and complete a shift. Um, at 328, right in the middle of all these operations, we had a, uh, an exposure fire. So flying embers from this fire landed on the roof of an adjacent business and, um, and uh, ignited a fire on the roof. Our crews noticed it right away and were able to extinguish that fire with minimal damage to the roof of that, uh, of that business. Yeah, a long time before uh, uh, any cause becomes apparent, we've got um, uh, certainly investigation on a, on a, on a complete uh, conflagration like this, very, very difficult. Um, so it becomes uh, mainly circumstantial and we'll be working with our colleagues with the Winnipeg Police Service to uh, establish that. So it's, it's, it's one block north and south, uh, so the building actually spans the entire block from here down to Sutherland, and then it goes eastward about a half a block. Certainly were exposures, especially on the south side of the, uh, of, uh, for the south part of the building. Um, we've, uh, we've done our best to, to limit the exposure fires, but uh, but they'll, uh, the businesses will certainly be affected by firefighting operations that will continue here for probably the next two days. That is Fire Chief John Lane addressing the media after that big fire at 274 Jarvis. Once again, if you want to see pictures and video, you can go to cjob.com and 680CJOB's Instagram. Question of the day at cjob.com brought to you by Credit Aid, helping Manitobans get out of debt since 1992. Visit creditaid.ca, call 204-987-6890. Have you been affected by property crime in the last year? Yes, me personally. Yes, friends, family, neighbors. Not yet. You can cast your vote at cjob.com. And that is the question because today the chief of police will be at City Hall to outline the annual crime stats for 2018. In a statement last week, Danny Smythe said, quote, I will make full comment to this on Monday when the Winnipeg Police Service releases the 2018 annual statistical report, which will outline concerning crime numbers that are affecting our officers and plaguing this city. Michael Weinrath is a professor of criminal justice and director of the Justice Research Institute at the University of Winnipeg and joins us now live on 680 CJOB. Dr. Weinrath, good morning to you, sir. Good morning. So what is the violent crime index for those that might be unfamiliar with this terminology? Yeah, well, the crime statistics can be overwhelming. And, uh, you know, it, one area is up and one area is down. So the crime uh, severity index is an attempt to uh, take different uh, crimes and look at how serious they are in terms of the type of sentences and jail time. And so they'll add those up and come up with a weighted average for the population to make it a little bit easier to see whether uh, serious crime is going up or going down. Does it tell the whole story? Does it, is, is it a snapshot? Is it something that's become convenient for different levels of government? What, what's your view on that? 
Well, I mean, I think it does a, a couple of things. I think it uh, it's actually a summary for for the average person as well. Uh, in terms of, you know, property crime could be going up, but it could be a lot of uh, shoplifting. It may not be as much as, say, a break-in, which would rate higher on that. Uh, violent crime uh, may be going up or down. Uh, but again, it's a summary of all the robberies, homicides, etc. So, How are these numbers used? What do the, what do the police do with them? Well, I mean, I think for the police, uh, you know, the message uh, usually is, uh, we have things under control, but uh, certainly in times when the crime rate is rising, uh, you know, they want to point out to, to the public uh, that it is rising. And uh, sometimes uh, it can involve a request for more staff and, and more resources. Uh, our local police chief, though, is uh, somewhat unique in the sense that, uh, and I think he's smart about it, right, that uh, you can't really police your way out of crime. Uh, you also have to look at other sorts of preventative measures, social service measures, like uh, addiction supports, uh, like the availability of treatment resources. And so on that front, uh, Professor Weinrath, what has changed for the better, maybe for the worse, in, in terms of uh, prosecution, uh, convictions, and, and, and sentencing? Are we making inroads there in terms of uh, recidivism rates? I know there's a whole lot of stuff to unpack out of that, but in terms of the overall criminal justice system, a lot of people, when we have this discussion about meth, about crime in our community, point to the criminal justice system and say the bad guys simply aren't spending enough time in jail. Is it that simple? Well, I mean, it's a revolving door, right? I mean, I don't, you can send people into jail longer, but eventually they're always going to get released. So it's a uh, investment in uh, more prisons is a, a very expensive sort of solution, right? So you want to make sure you lock up uh, the violent and uh, more dangerous people that need to be restrained, but you also want to uh, give them uh, treatment as well. But for a lot of uh, minor offenders that are uh, more caught up uh, in drug addiction, uh, you want to be able to get them to assistance. And yeah, I mean, uh, treatment beds uh, are costly, but uh, prison beds are the most costly of all. Go ahead, Greg. Yeah, are we doing a good enough job on that front, I guess would be my question. Are, are, we, uh, are we warehousing our criminals, or are we giving them a, a, cha- a chance to reform themselves? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the Winding Rivers program at the Hiddingly Correctional Center, I think, is a, is a good program uh, that's been of some uh, assistance. And uh, Stony Mountain has a number of, of different programs uh, that they offer. But Again, you sort of have those uh, less serious types of offenders that go to the remand center for a few days, then they're out, uh, and then they're they're back. Again, property crime has gone up significantly, and that's often a sign of a, a highly addicted population, right? They're stealing to uh, support their habit. So it would be nice to see more community-based uh, situations created, especially sort of the rapid access, right? So you have a, a sibling or nephew or, or niece who has this drug problem and they finally say, yeah, I need to do something about it. And they go on a wait list and suddenly they're they're back at it after a couple of weeks. So that ability to sort of access a treatment more swiftly, and, and certainly that's what the police have been asking for in other uh, agencies. And the government so far has actually moved quite slowly on that. When you hear the language from the police chief where he the, the, the chief of police says the crime numbers are concerning, that he talks about them as plaguing this city, obviously that's troubling. But in, in recent years, what has the trend been on crime overall? Has it been going up or down? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a, Winnipeg's always a little bit of an outlier. We actually follow national trends to a certain degree, like crime is up, violent crime is up nationally as well as in uh, Winnipeg. Uh, but often, you know, we're sort of slower to come out of these crime rate increases and uh, our reductions still uh, don't put us at the lowest levels. Uh, however, you know, if you look at the last 10 years, we actually had a period of time where the crime rate was going down uh, precipitously, and it's been about the last three years since it's uh, started to go up. And if you actually look at the last year or the statistics the police are putting on their website, uh, violent crime increases sort of slowed, but our property crime increase has just skyrocketed. Yeah, we, we don't know what we'll see as an increase. I've heard some rumors. I'm not going to share them on the air, but the, the number, the increase in property crime I, I potentially could be a, a startling number today. Have you heard similar things, Professor? Yeah, some of the stats that I've looked at uh, could be uh, not quite a doubling, but just a huge, huge uh, increase. So, and again, it's uh, it's pretty remarkable. You know, like you'll see ten or twenty percent in in certain areas, uh, but when you see fifty, seventy-five percent, that's pretty unprecedented, and certainly indicates some problems. Professor Weinrath, thank you so much for your time. As always, we greatly appreciate it when you spend time with us. Yeah, always a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Michael Weinrath is a professor of criminal justice and director of the Justice Research Institute at the University of Winnipeg, joining us live on 680 CJOB. But we want to start this half hour, Greg, with climate change. Yeah, Dr. Gerald Kootenay joins us now. He's a pundit and media commentator on the politics of climate change, and I've been following him on Twitter and some back and forth here. And uh, Dr. Kootenay, uh, thanks so much for taking some time with us this morning. Did you get blocked on Twitter by Michelle Rempel? Yes, I did. It happened yesterday. <laughs> and, uh, and what is it that you said that provoked uh, such an action by this uh, MP? I really don't know. I, I accused her of, of, of mocking climate change and that she shouldn't do that. And the next thing I knew, she was uh, she blocked me. Oh, well, okay. Has Andrew Shear blocked you yet? Because uh, you've, you've had some words for Andrew Shear and, and basically suggested that you'd like to sit down with him and, and give him some advice ab- uh, about why climate change matters, which is why I wanted to speak with you this morning and have our, our listeners sp- uh, hear from you. What would you tell Andrew Shear if you had uh, a couple minutes face-to-face with him? Well, the important thing to me is is not the policies per se on climate change, but you have hard targets, you have a hard schedule. Time is running out for us. It's time to take meaningful action and not make it on a whim that we hope something happens in the future. So what is it that Andrew Scheer and the Conservatives are doing that is troubling you as it pertains to climate change? I listened to his climate plan. I, I, I wrote an op-ed on it, and frankly, I was very disappointed. It didn't say anything to me. It's typical of the Conservatives to make vague statements. We'll take care of it with technology, and we'll take care of it with innovation. Uh, it doesn't work that way. We're so past that right now. Where are we at? You know, uh, you use the hashtag climate crisis on a regular basis. Uh, is that where we're at? Yeah, unfortunately, we've known about the so-called climate crisis probably for three decades. But the three decades have gone past and is continuously getting worse. And now we're at a stage that we have to start reacting soon. If not, it's going to be get worse and worse and worse. We're seeing this in Ottawa. I'm sure you're seeing it in Winnipeg as well. 
Well, we're seeing it with our provincial government who's arguing and the political side uh, are arguing with Ottawa about implementing a carbon tax plan. And, and I know you stated off the top, that's not really the discussion that you want to have, but let's talk about this and talk about the idea that there are still some Canadians that don't believe that humans have a hand in, in what's happening with the climate. What do you say to those folks? People are entitled to their opinion, but science says otherwise. The science is very clear on this. Climate change is real. Climate change is caused by us, and climate change is going to get a lot worse the longer we wait. There's no other side to the climate debate, only from those with invested interests. So when it comes to the carbon tax, then, uh, I mean, a lot of people are opposed to it. Where do you sit on the tax? I actually liked it. But again, what policies you use is, 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 is fine. But carbon tax, all it is is a sin tax. It's meant to be a deterrent for the average person can st- not pay it by cutting back on the greenhouse gas emissions. What's really special about the carbon tax is that I get a refund even before I started paying it in my, in my income tax return. And I can tell you, for, for a family like I have, I'm, I'm, I'm retired now, is that I will make money on that rebate because I have cut back my greenhouse gas emissions. So it doesn't even cost me anything. So is, is that the part of the carbon tax that a lot of people don't understand, those that uh, don't use a lot of uh, gasoline, those that are committed to using public transit, are sort of, uh, they've got some money in the kitty, so to speak, and, and can actually uh, net some some dollars in their pocket if they are doing the things that, dare I say, the government is encouraging us to do. I, the one thing that's gotten me in all this, and, and Ontario has been really bad, it's happened out west as well, especially in Alberta, the election campaigns have been anti-carbon tax political campaigns, which first of all makes no sense to me whatsoever. And all they do is they say, this is going to hurt families, it's going to hurt small businesses, but they never mention their rebate. And so that is so misleading. That is purebred propaganda. When politicians tell people things, the average person listens to them as they should. We're supposed to be, we're supposed to be paying attention to our political leaders. But when our political leaders are misleading us, we are essentially, we're going down the wrong path because of this. This is a horrendous attack on democracy as far as I'm concerned. So we could go down the road of, of asking whether or not the, the Liberal government, Justin Trudeau, have done a, a, a sufficient job in marketing and explaining to us how the rebate works and, 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 and in their mind why it works. Clearly, you believe that, that the, the rebate and the, and the tax is something that can work hand in hand. But you know there are going to be people that say, why are we even going down this road? As a country, Canada, one of the smaller countries population-wise on the planet, why should we be doing anything? Why should we be putting so much effort into this when big emitters, big polluters like China and India uh, refuse to, to engage in any sort of change? That drives me up the wall when I hear that. As Canadians, I think we're always proud of doing what is right and not what our neighbors are doing. Just because, for example, Donald Trump has removed the the uh, carbon programs, the climate programs of President Obama. Well, that means we should suddenly pay attention to this. People pick on China and India and the developing world generally. When you look at, they have agreed to the Paris Accord, Paris Agreement. They have their own targets. China is the leading 
investor in renewable energy in the world. I'll give you a story that really hit me when I wrote my first book about carbon politics. During the Kyoto uh, discussions, the Chinese delegate told the, the session, the developing world has luxury emissions, that the developing world has survival emissions. And that really stuck with me. And the world has to understand this. There are not comparable situations. China on a per capita basis is about half of what Canada is. So we certainly have no right, first of all, to chastise them and face it. I live in Canada. I'm worried about what Canada's doing. Couple of text messages here. I'm just going to read them as they've come in. I know we've got to let you go here. We're up against the clock, but uh, here we go. So, why before man came to Earth, the CO2 was twice or more than it is today? Oh boy, you got some good ones there. That has to do is that there there is natural sources of carbon dioxide, and certainly in the far distant past, past long before our species even existed on the Earth. Yes, there was very high CO2 from natural uh, emissions. It has nothing to do with modern climate change. Modern climate change is 100% driven by the burning of fossil fuels. One more before we let you go. Uh, Rick says, did Earth not have an ice age? Were people responsible for that too? The Earth's weather changes. (laughs) The typical climate denier response, of course the climate changes. But what science has proven beyond a doubt is that the modern changes is again driven by the CO2 emissions and those CO2 emissions are coming from us. All right. We'll leave it there. Thank you so much for for joining us, Dr. Gerald Cooney. We appreciate the visit. My pleasure. Thanks a lot, guys. Once again, Gerald is a pundit and media commentator on the politics of climate change. He has executive experience in the bioeconomy and renewable energy sector, and he was an adjunct professor at the University of Northern British Columbia, where he taught the graduate course Climate Change and Global Warning. He now lives in Ottawa. Thank you very much, Tristan Field-Jones. Hey, Tristan, do you like disco music? I enjoy some of it, yes. Wow. Okay. That's a, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> I didn't know you enjoyed anything, Tristan. <laughs> oh, come on now. <laughs> well, the reason why, what, what song did you pull up here, Will? What is this? This is actually Tristan's request. Really? <laughs> this, is oh, really? The, this is the Bee Gees. Yeah, you should be dancing. That's well, correct. It's a great selection. Thank you very much, Tristan. See? The reason why we're playing this is at a journalofmusicalthings.com. A slightly different look at the night disco was demolished. I just want to read a couple of passages from this post. Here's another example of how viewing his... Let, let, let the music go there, Will. Let's uh, enjoy the, the music here. Here's another example of how viewing historical events through a contemporary lens can lead to distortions about how things actually happened. Steve Dahl, a DJ at WLUP, a local rock station, was sick of the disco wave sweeping North America. The ubiquity of the Bee Gees. 
Saturday Night Fever and all the related dance music had become too much. He and the station struck a deal with the Chicago White Sox to stage a disco demolition event between games of a doubleheader. For more on what then happened, we're joined live on 680 CJOB by the man who wrote this post, Alan Cross, musicologist, professional music geek. He is the host of the ongoing history of new music. I caught uh, your punk rock edition over the weekend, Alan. Tremendous stuff. Oh, good. So, but the the socks. So, what happened after this call went out to get people to come down for disco demolition? Okay, the Chicago White Sox were having a horrible season. Attendance was down, and they thought, well, if we have some kind of events between games of a doubleheader that would attract some people. They were hoping to boost attendance from about 20,000 to about 25,000. But what ended up happening instead is that 50,000 people showed up. A lot of them brought their disco records, which were piled in center field. And then Steve Dahl drove out there in a Jeep and blew everything up. And as a result, uh, they fans got kind of out of control. There was a, a riot. Police were called in. The second half of the doubleheader was forfeited. And it has gone down in history as the night disco was demolished. It was disco demolition night. And since then, that was in July of 1979, so 40 years ago, people have had different interpretations of what happened and what it means. And this, you know, I I read a whole bunch of articles written by people who were not there, who were not alive at the time, and it started to get me really annoyed. So I had to set the record straight. Well, because there there have been some suggestions in the post-mortem on this that the act itself or the disdain for disco at the time in general in some factions was racist and or an attack on the now what we know as the LBGTQ community. Yeah, and on, on the Latin music community as well. Uh, and that may very well have been for a small minority of people. Maybe it was the situation in certain places in the United States. But if you were around when disco was happening and you were a rock fan, you felt that your music was completely under siege and that this ubiquity of this thump, 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 thump music was, was destroying popular culture. And we didn't really care who was making it. All we hated was the music. Now, I I grew up in Winnipeg, and I can tell you that in the late 1970s, early 1980s, when disco was absolutely huge, there were a bunch of us, and yes, we we may have been wearing mullets at the time, really kind of uh, concerned that rock was was being pushed aside by a, a type of music that we would, that we considered vacuous and without meaning and meaning and just just dumb so we fought back against it well you know and it's funny you mentioned that because uh two things one thing i'm going to play for you here a song that was probably recorded in the building we're sitting in right now but the other is the fact that uh bands like kiss and Queen in particular, had two of their biggest hits when they said, well, if you can't beat them, join them. Another one bites the dust, and I was made for loving you. Yeah, that's, that's true. People, there were, there were some bands that made the calculated risk of, 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 of trying to go disco. You could even say that Pink Floyd and Another Brick of the Wall Part Two fell mm. into that. The Rolling Stones certainly did with uh, a song like Miss You. 
So it, it seemed that this this you know four, uh, flat four on the floor beats this thump 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 thing was taking over and had infected the Rolling Stones and Kiss and Pink Floyd and it was oh my God what's happening where where are we going to lose our guitar our electric guitars next so we uh, again like I say fought back but we didn't really think about who was making the music and, and what their ethnicity was what their uh, sexual preference was we didn't we didn't even they didn't even cross our minds we just hated the music so where is this coming from then that this this thought that it was perhaps an act against uh, that it was an act that was being perpetrated by racist homophobes it looks like in many cases this is a bit of revisionist history where if you look at things through today's lenses today's sensibilities uh yeah you know it could be interpreted as an attack on music made by by non-white non-straight people uh would something like this ever happen today no because our taste in music and our tolerance for music is is much 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 more ecumenical than it was back in the day and it would be hugely politically incorrect to attack somebody else's music on this kind of level the other thing too is that let's be honest the forces of disco have won disco itself <laughs> has been reevaluated into something that uh, some people actually consider enjoyable maybe as a guilty pleasure maybe not uh the the people behind disco evolved into funk and rap and hip-hop and that is now pushing culture forward. And uh, dance music is huge with something like uh, the uh, electronic dance movement uh, scene. So, so all those things that we fought against when in 1978 to 1979, when the Bee Gees were taking over the planet, um, that has become part of the musical fabric of, of our lives now. And I think it'd be difficult to find uh, people that wouldn't admit, you know, if you're in your, your 40s, your 50s, or your 60s, and you, you said at the time you didn't like disco, if I played you Earth, Wind, and Fire, or Donna Summer, who's now in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I think, and maybe not everyone, but I think most of us would have a very difficult time not tapping our feet or even think about and getting up and dancing at, at a wedding social if that was being played. I, I, I think uh, in the in the rearview mirror, this music was a lot more popular with even more people than were admitting it at the time. That's the flip side for me as well. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right because uh, there are some songs, disco songs that come on the radio now that I'll, I'll turn up and kind of enjoy. And my, you know, my 19-year-old self would look at me now and go, <laughs> you idiot, you traitor, you quizzling, uh, how dare you admit to liking this music? But, uh, yeah, you know, there's been this huge reevaluation of the whole disco scene, which has affected the, you know, historical view of what happened back in those days. So we, this is revisionist history. We, we did not have anything, we were not, and I'm speaking for me and all my friends back then, uh, and, you know, growing up in Winnipeg and, and driving past, there was a club on Broadway and I can't remember what it was called, but on Friday and Saturday nights, we'd drive past it on our way to see some live band somewhere. And there was this huge line of people all dressed up like John Travolta and, and whatever other people were in Saturday Night Live. And we would be really, you know, dismissive and scornful of them. But deep down inside, we were thinking, geez, you know, those guys standing in line, they're going to get all the girls tonight and we're not. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, no, Alan, Alan was one of those guys, brother Jake. 
Brother Jake uh, was one of those guys. He was a popular morning man back in the day, and he tight. Uh, tapped into the to the zeitgeist of uh, what was going on with disco, and he and his and I can't remember the name of the group, but they they actually released a song that was a somewhat of a hit in Winnipeg called "Disco's in the Garbage." The Incinerators was the name of the group, and when I started reading your article, I started singing it in my head. Lo and behold, you had it embedded in the article. Let me see if I can play a little bit of it right now. This song was probably recorded in this building because at the time, 92 City FM would have been in this location. And I can't stand those songs. <laughs> it started many, many years ago when someone played this beat. Then they added bass and strings. Well, I think it was just a fun time in music when uh, I was old enough to like my kiss. And my ACDC and my Street Heart and Harlequin, but also appreciate the Dawn of Summer and the Bee Gees and all those bands that my mom and dad were listening to. It was a very interesting time for music, Alan. You always make it uh, beyond fascinating when we talk to you. Brian, thank you. And remember that we were not all homophobes and racists and, and, and terrible people. We, it's no different than us now not liking Justin Bieber. <laughs> Same thing. What did Steve Dahl, the DJ who started all this, what's he said on that front? Well, he has said that he's tired of defending what he did. He was just having a goof on a uh, type of music that a lot of listeners to his rock station hated. And uh, But over the years, he's been painted as somebody who uh, attacked the music of black people and, and people in the LGBTQ community. And uh, he, he says, listen, if you were there at the time, you know the truth. But if you look at it through today's standards uh it, it it takes on a completely different look if you want to read more you can go to a journal of musical things.com a slightly different look at the night disco was demolished we've also linked it to our 680 cjob instagram story for more alan cross thank you very much for joining us a pleasure as always you're, you're very welcome anytime alan cross is a musicologist he is the host of the ongoing history of new music we love talking to him about music and I had no idea that this was viewed, that that night was viewed as being perpetrated by racist homophobes. I, can, I guess I can sort of understand, as, he, as Alan pointed out, looking at it through a different lens. In the rearview mirror, uh, rear mirror. Yeah. Tough word to say. I, yeah. yeah. It, well, speaking of Miller, I would suspect that most of the people who were partaking in this were just enjoying a Miller and <laughs> trashing some records to say that, that they, as, he, as Alan mentioned, maybe there were a couple of people who saw it that way, but for the most part, not a chance. It's just music that a lot of people hated at the time. But I'm glad you mentioned Earth, Wind & Fire. Earth, Wind & Fire's September is is impossible not to smile when it comes on the radio. What was Uncle Phil's uh, legal firm on the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air? Firth, Wynn & Meyer? <laughs> really? <laughs> I believe it was, yes. <laughs> that is gold. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon. 
911, what's your emergency? Ah, I'm on a cruise ship! Ah, there was an explosion! Oh my god, the ship is sinking! I can't get out! There's water everywhere! We're going down! I've got a lock on your location. Stay with me. Hurry! Hello? Are you there? Help is on the way. Angela Bassett and Peter Krause return in an all-new season of 911 on a new night. Thursday, March 14th on Global. Stream on Stack TV.